starting today, we're going to start at looking at the actual process of hermeneutics. What do you do to interpret the text? And everything we've talked about before is the foundation of, for everything we're going to talk about next. So we've seen those basic principles of hermeneutics. How do you apply them? How do you use them? They're used because the interpreter takes a series of steps when they're going through the process of interpretation. And you bring those principles to bear, and you use those principles when you go through and you apply these steps. This process of applying principles to your interpretation is called exegesis. By the way, that's what we're going to be focusing on today, analyzing the context of the text. Dr. Brad Clausen defines exegesis this way. He says, it refers to the application of appropriate hermeneutics during the process of interpreting a text of Scripture with the goal of discovering the meaning of the text intended by the author. Anybody remember the seven principles for right hermeneutics? You guys didn't know you were coming in for a quiz, did you? It's a good reminder. You'll remember these when I show them. First principle, we, set, we submit to the authority of the text. We don't come to the text and question its authority. We don't come to the text and say, well, I have my own preferences. I'm going to pick that. We submit to what the text says. We are dependent upon God. We set aside our pre-understandings. We seek a single meaning for every text. We understand the language naturally and in context. We recognize progressive revelation, and we confirm our conclusions. You guys remember those now? These are the principles that we bring to the process of interpreting the text. And if we abandon these principles, we're going to get our interpretation wrong. So what is the process? We have the principles. Now, what is the process? There are four stages of Bible interpretation. And these four stages come directly from Dr. Clausen. Stage one, analyzing the context of the text. Stage two, observing what the text says. Stage three, interpreting what the text means. And step four, applying the text meaning to life. Now, the overall order here is important. What's especially important is that number four stays number four, and you don't try to apply the text before you interpret it. But I think stages one and two, you can move those back and forth and interchange them. You can do your observation before you do your contextual analysis. But this morning, we're going to be focusing on stage one. What is context? When we say context, what are we talking about? What do you guys think? What, what is context? It's a broad question. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah, it encompasses the whole picture of everything the author is saying. Like that, the environment that it's written in. The purpose. Yeah, who is it written to or why was it written? There you go. Context. This word actually is a combination of two Latin words. Con. Anybody know? Uh, anyone know Spanish? With, con queso. It means together, with. And then the word textus is the word from which we get our English word textile. Anybody know what a textile is? Textiles? Cloth, fabric? It refers to things that are woven. And so context refers to things that have been woven together. Things have been woven together in the text. The author brings together all sorts of different things, and he weaves them together to put, get across a main idea, to convey his meaning. And when we're talking about Scripture, it refers to words, paragraphs, chapters, historical elements that are all woven together by the author. And you, if you want to know what the author means, you need to know what elements he's bringing together 
so you can get the meaning that he wants you to obtain. Walter Kaiser, the exegete must feel that his primary obligation is to find this thread of thought which runs like a life stream through the smaller and larger parts of every passage. When this connection is missed or avoided, there's a fair chance that the interpreter may miss the scope, end, purpose, and entire plan by which the author ordered the various parts of his work. Context is vital. You cannot get the meaning of the passage if you don't understand the, the context. I've, I've talked about Ulrich Zwingli before, but he said when you take a text out of its context, it's kind of like breaking a flower from its root. If you break a flower from its root, what happens to the flower? It dies. Yes, a text without a context is a pretext. You can make it mean whatever you want when you take it out of context. And so we have to get the context right. Now, we talked about the categories of context previously. Anybody remember the two categories of context? Historical and literal. Remember that? Historical context looks at the world in which the author and his audience existed. It considers what kind of world, what kind of culture produced the text. As some of you said, it's dealing with the circumstances of the author and his audience. And so this is going to include his language, his geography, his culture, the social settings of the time. It's going to deal with the politics of the world at the time. And these were, these, excuse me, these details are often not included in the words of the text, and yet they're still interwoven into those words. And you can't understand what he's saying without understanding those details. Historical context looks at elements that aren't always written. Literary context looks at the setting in the written text. It's the context of that passage within that chapter or that book or the Bible itself. It's everything that comes before your passage and the things that come after your passage. Uh, Bernard Rahm said the material before the passage is the radar which guides the approaching and the following material is the radar of the leaving. And if we track the material approaching and leaving the particular passage, we have the framework in which the passage should be understood. The authors of Scripture did not write one verse at a time and leave them as isolated verses. When you read through Paul in the book of Romans, Romans 1 is connected to Romans 2, and Romans 2 is connected to Romans 3, and every verse is connected to the verses that surround it. And so you have to understand that verse within the context of the entire paragraph. You get the context wrong, and you're going to have a wrong interpretation. So one way you can get your interpretation wrong is, is to ignore the context. There's another way you can get it wrong. Sometimes people try to bring context into the passage that really is not part of the passage. So let's say they go to the book of Revelation. And rather than looking at the specific passage and what is immediately around that passage, they run to another book of the Bible. And they try to use that as a lens to interpret the book of Revelation. They grab word meanings, they grab definitions, historical events, and use them as a lens to, to tell you what John meant in the book of Revelation. But they never actually go to the text of Revelation to find out what John meant. And they ignore that context. Another way you can go is the exact opposite direction. And that is looking at your text and focusing solely on grammar and syntax and the word meanings. And you end up looking at one word at a time and you only see one word. And that's where you'll find so-called preachers 
who take a verse, they look at one word in the verse, and they build an entire theology off one little word, and they miss everything that surrounds it. Uh, Dr. Clausen, I said, it is the same as trying to understand a forest by first examining one of the trees, or trying to appreciate a painting by first looking at a single brushstroke without knowledge of the whole. To try to examine one little phrase or one word in a verse without understanding the context is like trying to say you understand an entire forest because you looked at the bark on one tree. You've just missed the point. Walter Kaiser, good exegetical procedure dictates that the details be viewed in light of the total context. Unless the exegete knows where the thought of the text begins and how the pattern develops, all the intricate details may be of little or no worth. All your syntactical study on that one word or your lexical study on that word is useless if you ignore the context and you don't look at the context. Uh, Dr. Clausen provides some interesting charts here to help you understand context and help you see this idea that everything is, fits within a context. First is the immediate context. He calls these the, the dimensions of context. First is the immediate context. Notice the small inner circle is a term or a word. You get to a verse and you find one word in that verse. That term is within a greater context. What's the greater context the term is found in? If you want to understand the term, you have to understand it within that phrase. But if you want to understand the phrase, what do you have to do? You have to understand the clause. Each one of these is found in a greater context. You begin with the individual term, and whatever definition you apply to the term, that definition has to fit the phrase. And whatever definition you apply to the term has to fit not only the phrase, it has to fit the clause, it has to fit the sentence, and it has to fit the paragraph. Because if you change the meaning of a word and it doesn't fit those, you make the text into gibberish. Then you have the broader context. Here it's not looking at one word, it's looking at a paragraph. And if you want to understand the one paragraph, you have to understand that paragraph because it exists within a context. And the context of the paragraph is the section. You might say the, the chapter. And that chapter shows up in a division. That division shows up in a book. And if you're going to understand the paragraph, it needs to fit within the context of the entire book. What is the author's main goal in this section? What point is he trying to make? And how does that paragraph contribute to his main point? How does it fit within this division, and how does this little paragraph contribute to the entire chapter, and how does the chapter contribute to the purpose of the book? I want to understand how this fits within the whole picture of what the author wants to say. You can go further out than that. You can go to the corpus context. How does this book fit within this writer's view of all of his works? Take something like 1 John. 1 John is a letter, it's an epistle. Does John have other epistles? We can use other epistles to help us understand 1 John. Those are similar works by the same author. And then you can go outside of that, and you can understand those books within the context of everything John wrote, like the Gospel of John or the book of Revelation. And then finally, the canonical context. How does this book fit within the entire corpus of Scripture? There's a book that you're studying, there are similar books. There are other epistles in the New Testament, in the book, in the Bible, excuse me, if I could speak this morning. 
There are other books in the, that Testament, and those books all fit within the Bible. Where does your book fit within that context? Everybody understand the different dimensions of context? And you have to have this in right perspective here. All right, let's get to the actual process here. That's what you guys are all waiting for. Again, these come from Dr. Clausen, but I'm going to give you all six steps up front. Okay? What are the six steps for analyzing context? First, gather appropriate resources. Second, study the book's historical circumstances. Consider the book's canonical context. Discover the book's central purpose. Determine the book's general structure. And identify the text's immediate context. These steps start with the broadest context, historical context. What's the historical setting? And then it moves from the historical and the very broad, and it works its way down to the passage. This is another chart from Dr. Clausen. He takes these same steps, and he puts it into this chart. Notice that the top is very broad. You gather your, your uh, resources. Step one is the very next one down. I don't know if you, can you guys even read that? Okay. Step one is study the book's historical context. It's very broad, and you work your way down the, the steps until you get down to the text, and you study the immediate context of your verse. By following this process, it ensures that you avoid reducing the text to just its individual little words. Spending all of your time studying grammar and word meanings, but ignoring, uh, ignoring the context. Walter Kaiser again. So the problem is not merely the common error of forgetting or disregarding the immediate context. It is rather the more serious error of attempting to atomize or fragment the text and presuming that the meaning can be attributed to phrases, sentences, or even paragraphs in isolation from the rest of the text. By starting with the broad, here, you make sure that when you get to your text, you understand the context before you get there, and you're not reading meaning into the passage. So we're going to talk about this first one. Gather good resources. This will start making more sense in a minute. We like books in this church, right? Desiderius Erasmus. When I get a little money, I buy books. If any is left, I buy food and clothes. Anybody else do that here? Okay, we got a couple. If you want to do Bible study and you really want to be a faithful interpreter, you have to have some good resources. Your study begins by ensuring that you have the tools that you need in order to understand the text. And collecting good books, good commentaries, good resources is a vital part of your study. Now, some of you already have, you know, a small library at your house. But even if you have a decent collection of books, this step is still important. Because it's not just looking at the quantity of books that you have. The question is, do you have the right books, the right resources for that text? Not all commentaries, lexicons, Bible encyclopedias, and the rest of them are created equal. And a bad commentary will lead a faithful exegete down some really bad routes. You don't need a lot of, a lot of books. You just need a couple of good ones. And so you need to invest some time, some effort, a little bit of money into buying the best resources that are available for your book. Uh, quality is more important here than quantity. Resources like commentaries all have strengths and weaknesses. 
And usually the strength or the weakness isn't necessarily with the commentary. Even good commentaries have weaknesses. Uh, for example, I'll give you an example here. Anybody know that commentary? Anybody own that commentary? One, two, a couple of you. The Bible Knowledge Commentary. Fantastic theologically. I have never opened that commentary up and found something I thought, no, they got that wrong. You know where the weakness of this commentary is? That's the Old and New Testament. What's the weakness of this commentary? Very, very shallow. It gives you an overview of every passage. It explains it, but it doesn't go into a lot of details. It doesn't give you the arguments. It's good. It's trustworthy. And if you want to get the big picture of your passage, this is a great resource to go to. But it's not the best resource if you want to go really deep. So that shouldn't be the only commentary you use. Why? Because it's not very detailed. Okay. Well, then how do I know which commentaries I should go pick up? Okay. Find someone who shares our, our beliefs on hermeneutics. That would be a good start. But how do I know who those people are? Publishing houses. You can go to the publishing house and ask them. Yeah, as you do more with commentaries and you, you spend more time studying, you'll find out that there are certain publishing houses that allow heresy to be printed, and there are others who won't allow it. Okay, you can go find someone that you trust. And that's actually where we're going to go. Commentaries are helpful when you're studying the Bible, especially with context, because most of them give you an introduction. One place you can go is here, bestcommentaries.com. Why do I recommend, why do I give you this? Because it's a free resource. It's free. You just go to the website. Now, here's what you need to understand. Who made this website? The suggestions on the website are based on the people who made the website. So while it's free, this tool has some downsides. Because they'll recommend some commentaries. They've recommended commentaries before, and I open up the commentary, and I read it, and it was a whole bunch of liberalism in it. So you have to be careful when you're using websites like this, because they don't give an explanation as to why they rank that commentary as the top commentary for that book. They just tell you, this is the one we like. Right. Yeah, she was saying that it's helpful if you're just starting to have a church that can help you with that. And yes, yeah. checking endorsements is helpful. Having a local church where you can go to your pastors and ask them, is this worthwhile? Should I get this? Um, that's, those are both excellent suggestions. Here, when you're looking at this, just understand they have their opinion, and they don't tell you why they have their opinion. There are some other tools you can use, like the Old Testament Commentary Survey by Trimper Longman. And again... This is his opinion. But he goes through every book of the Old Testament and he provides commentaries that he thinks are useful and helpful. What's good about this resource is that he tells you why he thinks it's good and helpful. And he'll tell you what about the commentary he likes. There's a New Testament version by D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson, his is in more paragraph form. 
So you actually have to read several paragraphs. Trimper Longman gives you the name of the commentary, and then he gives you a paragraph explaining the commentary. My preferred is this one. Commentaries for Biblical Expositors by Jim Roskup. Dr. Roskup was a professor at TMS. I think Pastor Michael had him as a professor. I use this book all the way through seminary, and I still use it today when I'm studying books. And you just open the book, you find the book, the book of the Bible that you're looking at, and he gives you a list of commentaries for that book. And then he explains each commentary. And he'll tell you, this guy's a little liberal, this guy's really conservative. This guy is a little shallow. This guy goes really deep. And he'll give you the arguments for which commentary would be better, and you can find which one that you like. That way you're not going out and buying massive sets of commentaries. Should you go out and buy a full set of commentaries, other than someone like John MacArthur, who I think that's worthwhile? You know how you can go and find like the World Biblical Commentary, the New Testament Pillar Commentary? I wouldn't recommend buying those full sets outside of someone like MacArthur or Calvin. The reason is because those full sets are written by multiple different authors, and every author has different opinions, and every author has different levels of skill, and sometimes you'll get a set, you'll spend $1,000 on the set, and one commentary will be really good, and the next one will be very liberal and horrible. So just buy the commentary according to whatever book you're you're looking at. If you're studying the book of Genesis, buy commentary specifically for the book of Genesis. And this is these resources are a great place to start. How does this help you with contextual analysis? It helps you because at the front of every commentary, there's an introduction to the book. And those introductions in the commentaries give you historical background, background information on the author, the purpose for his writing, and all the other stuff that you need for understanding the context. Keep in mind, just because the book is on sale, just because you can get it next day delivery, and just because it's Amazon's number one recommended book, doesn't mean you should spend money on it. These annotated bibliographies are a really helpful first start. That's gather good resources. There's a lot more you can say on that. Number two, study the book's historical circumstances. Study the book's historical circumstances. Here you're looking to become familiar with the circumstances of the writer and his original audience. Who was he writing to? When you're looking at the historical circumstances, you're trying to ask a few questions. Who is the author? Where was the author? Wow, that went quick. Where was the author when he wrote? Who was he writing to? Why did he write? What are the circumstances that led to him writing? If you go and look at something like the book of 2 Corinthians... You find out that the 2 Corinthians was written because of false teachers and sin in the church, and these false teachers were attacking Paul, and so Paul wrote them this letter. So how do you go about finding this information? Well, first, you need to use some resources to do this. And so this kind of dovetails with our previous one. What resources do you use for studying the historical context? The first one is you read the entire book, not the commentary, the book of the Bible. Just read the book. Take those questions, sit down with a notepad, write out the questions, and as you start reading, start looking for the answers. What does the book itself say about the author? Does the author identify himself in the book? If you're studying 2 Corinthians, start in chapter 1, verse 1, and read through the end of the book, and you will find the answer to many of these questions. 
For example, if you want to know who wrote 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Asia, or Achaia, not Asia. That one verse answers multiple questions. What questions does that one verse answer? Who's the author? Who's the author of 2 Corinthians? Thank you. Yes, it was Paul. And again, this is where commentaries, you'll pick up the commentary, and you'll find commentaries who will see a verse like that, and they'll turn around and say, Paul didn't write this book. Good place to find out if you want to read, the, read that commentary. Okay, here's another question. Who was Paul with when he was writing? He was with Timothy. What do you know about Timothy based on this, this verse? He's a brother in Christ. He's a Christian. You see how you can find out a whole bunch of information from one little verse? Who was he writing to? Church of Corinth. How about 2 Corinthians 12? Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but saying farewell to them, I went on to Macedonia. Here we can find out that Paul was also a close friend with Titus. We also find out Paul went to Troas, and in Troas, he was looking for his friend Titus, and he couldn't find him, and he was really upset that he couldn't find his friend, so he left Troas and went to Macedonia. Why would that be helpful for you in studying 2 Corinthians? Because that helps you date the book. You can go into the book of Acts and look for events that match up with that and find out when this is occurring. What missionary journey is Paul on when he went to Troas? 2 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2. This is the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be confirmed. I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. How many times has Paul been to Corinth? Twice. And what is Paul thinking about doing now as he writes the book of 2 Corinthians? He's thinking about going back. Paul had visited them a second time. This can't be the founding visit because this visit he describes in chapter 2, verse 1, is being sorrowful. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you again in sorrow. And now he's looking at going back to them again. And he writes this letter with the hope of not having to have another sorrowful visit where he has to rebuke people in the church. You see how just reading the book gives you a lot of details about the author and the circumstances of writing? And this is a step we often skip over. We don't want to just read the book. Some helpful tips, a little tip here. When you're reading through the book and you're trying to learn about the author, look for the first-person pronoun. I, we, mine, we, us. Look for the pronoun. You do that in the book of Acts, and you will learn a lot about Luke and how he was traveling. There are specific areas where Luke uses we. We did this, we did that, we did this. And then in the very next verse, he will turn around and say, they did this. And you learn a lot about Luke just by reading the pronouns and looking at the pronouns. Not only can you learn about the author, sometimes he'll just tell you the purpose for writing, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. But in the case, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. What's the purpose of 1 Timothy? 
to know how to conduct yourself in the household of God. That's his purpose statement. The point I want to make here is that you can learn a lot just by reading through the book. John MacArthur has a book on how to study the Bible. You know what the first thing he says you need to do for Bible study? Read the Bible. Just read the book. Before you go buy commentaries, just read the book that you're studying. Before you ever crack open a commentary, go ask someone's opinion, just read through the book and try to answer these questions on your own. What's the next step? What's the next resource you can use in studying the historical context? You study Bibles. Once you've read through the book all the way, now you can start using other resources to help you build out your understanding of the historical context. Study Bibles, as all of you probably know, have an introduction at the very beginning of every single book. And it's a great place to go because these are usually brief. They don't go through a lot of arguments, but they give you enough information that you can get a good understanding of what's going on in the book. Um, one of them is the ESV Study Bible, or some of you, a couple of you might have the MacArthur Study Bible, right? After Study Bibles, you can go get um, Bible dictionaries, handbooks, and encyclopedias. Here you're not going to look up, these aren't in canonical order. They're, well, they're just like any Bible dictionary or any dictionary or encyclopedia. Oftentimes you search for things based on one word. Let me give you an example. If you got the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary and you want to look up 2 Corinthians, you would look up in the index, Corinthians, second letter, right? And so you would search for Corinth and you would go look up Corinthians. And when you get to the entry there, he gives you the background on the book of 2 Corinthians. And he explains to you all the various visits he provides cross-references for you to look at in the book. So if you missed some of the cross-references, you can find them there. He helps you understand the various visits and the various letters that Paul wrote to Corinth. An illustrated uh, a Bible dictionary or an encyclopedia is a great source to help you understand context. You can also use Bible surveys, and these are exactly what they sound like. They give you a survey of each testament. For example, um, for example, you have a survey of the Old Testament. You also have a survey of the New Testament. In the New Testament, if you want to understand in the Pax Romana, you can go to a Bible survey and you can find information on what is the Pax Romana. That would be relevant for the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you can go into a survey and find out what, is, what does it mean when they talk about Baal worship or Baal worship. You can also go into um, histories, F.F. Bruce, New Testament history, or um, backgrounds of early Christianity by Everett Ferguson. How would these be helpful for you? You guys remember the story of John in, in, uh, John 4, Samaritan woman at the well? She's a Samaritan. Why do you think they pointed out she's a Samaritan? Pointed out because there's something unique about the Samaritans. You need to know who the Samaritans are if you want to understand the story. The same is true when you go into the story of the Good Samaritan. Why was that so important? How can you learn about the Samaritans? You can learn about the Samaritans by getting a book like one of these two. And I just want to show you that. Everett Ferguson 
will help you understand the, the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. You'll remember that the northern, excuse me, the nation of Israel divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. And then the northern kingdom was taken away and into captivity by Assyria. And when the exiles returned, Everett Ferguson says this, the exiles who returned from Babylonia felt a social superiority to the people of the land who remained around Jerusalem and a religious and racial superiority to their neighbors to the north around the old capital of the northern kingdom of Samaria. Notice he gives you 2 Kings 17.24. He's giving you a reference that you can go back to the Bible and learn about the people who were there. Who were the people that were still in the land of Samaria after the deportation? Those are the Samaritans. In 2 Kings 17.24, you find this. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from uh, Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in the cities. So get this, you get Assyria that comes in, they wipe out the northern kingdom and they leave. And the king then turns around and takes people that he has conquered and he resettles them in the land. These are Gentiles that had been deported from their lands and moved into Samaria. These are the same people that we find in Ezra 4 and Nehemiah 6. Authorities in Samaria oppose the rebuilding of the temple and the city walls. These are the same people that when the Jews returned back to their land and tried to rebuild the temple, these are the people that came to them and said, no, you need to stop. We don't want you to build here. In fact, this is confirmed in Ezra 4, verse 9. Then wrote Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, the judges, and the lesser governors, and the officials, the secretaries, the men of Eric, and the Babylonians, and the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Osnapper took away into exile and settled in the city of Samaria and in the rest of the region beyond the river. Who are the people living in Samaria when the Jews get back? Babylonians, Elamites, Gentiles, and they move into the land and they begin, they set up a new temple on, the Mount, on Mount Gerizim. You find out later that uh, the king also sent a Levitical priest to try to teach the people the Jewish religion because he thought that they can win favor with Yahweh by doing the Jewish religion. So they practice some elements of the Jewish religion, but they set up a new temple on Mount Gerizim, and they practice some new things that weren't part of the Jewish religion. They had their own version of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Now, with that context, do you understand why there's animosity in the New Testament against the Samaritans? Because these are Gentiles who are claiming to have the Jewish religion, claiming to be the people of God, and yet they are ignoring what... God actually said they were to do to worship him. Uh, later they did, and in total, yeah. But not, uh, I don't think they would have outnumbered them when the exiles returned, the first group of the exiles returned. Now, Everett Ferguson actually comes to a different conclusion. Everett Ferguson says these aren't Gentiles, these are actually Jews who just got left behind. They're the poor people uh, who the Assyrians didn't take with them. I don't think that works. And I bring that up because, again, when you look at resources, you can't just 
turn your brain off and take everything they say. You have to look at what the Bible actually says, because in John 4, Jesus makes a statement about the Samaritans. Listen to what Jesus says about them. Jesus said to her, speaking of the woman of the well, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. If she was Jewish, if she was an ethnic Jew, why would he say that to her? Why would he refer to her as you people? Great cross-reference. Yes. He tells them, don't go to the Samaritans. Go to the house of Israel. It's because these are not Jews. These are not descendants of Jews. These are Gentiles who were deported into the land after the exile. Jesus didn't view the Samaritans as Jews, nor did he believe they practiced the Jewish religion. So Everett Ferguson, while his resource is really good, it's not infallible, and you need to keep your ears open and stick to what the text says. You can study the historical context by reading the entire book, by study Bibles, by Bible dictionaries, handbooks, encyclopedias, by Bible surveys. You can also get Bible introductions. Bible introductions, if you look at it like a, a study Bible, every book has an introduction. These introductions are going to be longer. So in the Old Testament, you have the world and the word. In the New Testament, Donald Guthrie has a New Testament introduction. And this will go through all the information on who is the author, why was the author writing. They'll give you outlines of every book. They'll even give you a summary of the book, and they'll break down the different sections of the book and explain each section of the book to you so you can understand the broader context of that book. In the New Testament, my favorite is Edmund Hebert's three volumes. It's a New Testament introduction. It's a fantastic resource. I think, there, well, there used to be one of those in the, in the bookstore. But these are a great way to help you get an understanding of the, the book that you're studying. You can also use a Bible atlas. Bible atlases are very helpful in um, understanding the geography and the region. One of them is the Satellite Bible Atlas. You can actually download it online. This gives some really clear pictures of maps. This is great for pastors and people who teach. It's also great for anyone who just wants good pictures of the land. Really clear, really easy to understand. A little expensive, but it's still good. Another one is the Moody, excuse me, the new Moody Bible Atlas. He also gives really good maps, and those maps come with explanations and descriptions of what's on the map, along with cross-references. There are books on manners and customs. There are specific customs in the Bible that you get in there and you start reading, and you're like, I don't understand what they're talking about here. What is this? What is this purification? Then he talks about in John 2, Manners and Customs in the Bible by Victor Matthews. You can go in and find out what those customs are and how they affect your text. Okay, all of these are intended to help you understand the context of your book, the broader context. These are some of the resources. If you get a New Testament introduction, you probably don't need the survey. You probably don't need to buy all of these. You can buy one or two of them. Your goal in this is to put yourself back into the time and the place of the author, to get yourself in their shoes, understand what life was like. And that can include a lot of things like the political realities affecting the world. That can include things like, you know, understanding the political landscape when you read the Minor Prophets. 
a lot of people have trouble understanding the minor prophets because they have no idea who he's talking to. But if you understand who the prophet is and who he's talking to, the northern or the southern kingdom, it becomes a lot easier. Having a, a survey of the Old Testament that explains what that book is for and what the author was trying to do will make reading the book much easier. You also want to know what the economic situation is like? This could be understanding the recipients of the book were farmers, or understanding that the author of your book was a tent maker. Or this could be understanding the kind of money that was used. Why is there a face on a coin? Or how did they use grain as currency? As an interpreter, you need to have enough information about that context, the historical context, so that you know what applies when you get to your text. All right. That's number two. Next week, we'll consider the book's canonical context. Any questions, comments? Can you find any of this at the Master's website? Not that I know of on the website. Uh, the Master's Seminary Journal has a lot of book reviews. So if you want to look for, a, if you have a book that you want to know if you can buy it, you can look on their journal. Um, one place you can go is uh, YouTube, the Master Seminary YouTube channel. They have their Old Testament and New Testament classes, and usually those classes include recommendations for books, for the study of different books of the Bible. Yes, depending on the type of commentary you get. The more academic commentaries will have footnotes, and then some of them have those pesky endnotes where they put them all at the end. But as you're reading through, just look for the superscript, and you can find the reference. And that's a really good thing to do. It's called bibliography mining. Find commentaries that have footnotes in it or endnotes, and then go look at those resources. Any other questions, comments? No? Okay. Well, let me pray, and we'll be done. Father, we thank you, as always, for your grace and your mercy. Uh, we do ask that you would help us to be good Bible interpreters, that we would be uh, faithful in our studies that we would understand the context of every book and that uh, you would help us to find the, the best resources that we can use to do that. We do ask that you would be with us this morning for our worship, that it would be pleasing and glorifying to you, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.